0: The wonderful songs that we get to sing and worship together with. Last time we were here together, it was exciting to see a grandfather and granddaughter singing in the worship team together. This time it's grandfather, grandmother, and granddaughter. Very exciting. I love it. Let's pray and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to receive his word. Lord, we do ask that you would open up our hearts. Lord, we want to hear you, we want to know you, we want to follow you. And we can only do so by your grace. Open us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are living in a fascinating time. A time of extremely rapid change when everything that we thought was good and right is being questioned, and worse, it feels like it's all being overturned. What we know is murder is championed as women's rights. What we know to be prohibited by God, protected as real love. Greed trumps righteousness. The bottom line is the only moral absolute. Let me do what pleases me. We're living in a time when faithful Christians are feeling more and more out of place. Even afraid. Maybe unsure. And I don't think we like to admit this very much, but... It would surprise me if it's not true with many of us. I think that sometimes we wonder if the Lord is really in control. We know His word promises that He will return one day to judge the quick and the dead. We know that He promises to bring about perfect justice and righteousness. We know that He promises that He is going to wipe every tear away. We know this. But the more we look around many have that feeling is there hope now as i was thinking about this it occurred to me that this must have been the feeling that the people of god had who knew the promise of a davidic king who was to come who knew the covenant that god had made with david but didn't see it fulfilled now, now listen to the words that God promised to David when he spoke to him in 2 Samuel 7. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And then he repeats the language Your throne shall be established forever. In other words, the promise was that this coming Davidic king would reign forever and ever. But there's a problem if you know the scriptures. The problem is that Solomon, who came after David, he came and what happened to him? He died. And so did every other king of Israel and Judah that followed the line of David. And not only that, at some point, the entire earthly throne, the kingdom that David had, was no longer. The prophets kept saying things, didn't they? They kept reminding the people of God, even while they were in exile in Babylon, God's going to raise up a king. That king will sit on the throne. He's going to sit on the throne of David forever. But but imagine the people, what they were thinking at the time, because they'd look around and they would see their families are being raised in Babylon. Foreign language, foreign gods, foreign traditions, foreign everything. People who hated the God they worshipped. And they wondered... When, Lord, when will this king come? And some, no doubt, gave up hope. There's certain tools that we use to help children learn, certain effective ways that we help children and really adults learn to remember things, certain methods that can help keep key things in our focus. For example, if you put truth into the form of a song, that helps, doesn't it? How many of you guys grew up memorizing scripture to songs? Do you remember that? We would memorize scripture to songs. How many of you guys realize today, when you think about it, that you know more lyrics to songs than you do scripture? How many want to admit that? Oh, some were bold enough to admit it. We'll talk afterwards. Okay. Uh, here's something interesting in church history. Let me tell you this a lot of false teachers know this about people heretics knew that people learn with songs and jingles and how many of you guys have ever heard of the heretic arius he was during the fourth century nicaea when the church was finally putting forth a clear statement on the trinity and arius is famous for being not only a teacher but a hymn writer and why did he write hymns because he wanted to teach the people and make it stick in their hearts and in their minds that Jesus is not the same as God that he's created. That's not true, by the way. We know that. That's heresy. There's another person, Johann Tetzel. Maybe you've heard of him. Anyone? If you've seen the movie Luther, you know him. Tetzel also knew that to teach false teaching, it would help to have some sort of a couplet or a a jingle. And he had this great one, this is its English version. I'm sure it was better in his original too, but he says, As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Imagine a song about indulgences to get people to pay up to free their loved ones from purgatory. Sounds like some marketing schemes we know of today. But the false teachers, beloved, aren't the only ones who know how powerful songs and lyrics can be. God knows it because God created us this way. And so He gave to us the book of Psalms. A book of songs and and hymns and music to remind us as we worship, what should be on our minds? What does He want us to remember? What does He want us to hope in? What does He want our hope to be grounded upon? How do we face the uncertain times? He doesn't leave us to our own devices. He has given to us songs to stick in our minds. So this, this year, I thought to myself, for Advent, we'll do a short series on Jesus in the Psalms. Where do we find the Messiah In the hymn book of the Old Testament. And what is it that we can learn about him and his purpose through these songs? As we think about Christmas during this season, we want to see Christ. And he's found very clearly in the Psalms. Would you open your Bibles with me? Open up to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2. And I ask that you would open up and that you would keep your Bibles open as we're going to walk our way through this glorious Psalm, Psalm 2. Open up your Bibles and keep them open. This is God's Word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen? May God bless the reading of his word. In this psalm, you could see four stanzas. Do you see that there? If you're nicely divided up. Four stanzas, four verses. Really, it's four pictures, or if you would, four scenes. You have these in, the, in your bulletin, I believe. I've laid out just a brief outline there for you. So I want to look at these four scenes or four pictures that we see. Um, Some of you have heard of the band Rage Against the Machine. How many of you guys will admit that? Okay. ah, More of you than I thought would admit it. Here's what Wikipedia says about them if you don't know who they are. It says the band are known for their melding of heavy metal and rap music with punk rock and funk influences. Sounds exciting. And, and here's the key, their anarchist political views that's it that's the key when they say they're raging against the machine what are they raging against they're raging against the system they're raging against the government they're raging against the economy really they're raging against authority look at verses 1 through 3 in psalm 2 here's our first picture rage against god that's what it is it's rage against God, the authority. The psalmist, though, if you look at the way he writes this, he's surprised at seeing their folly. He asks a question, why? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? One commentator, he translated it this way. I thought it was an interesting translation. He says, why do they bother? That's the sense. Now, this psalm is thought to be an enthronement psalm used when a new heir to the throne was born or when a new king was installed. But others think that it may have been written when the the kingdom didn't look so good. And it was meant to, to encourage, to build hope and remind them of the covenant promises of God. I think that's possible too. The people of God may be concerned, may be unsure, like many of us are today. The psalmist seems to portray an attitude of deep awareness That he wants to share. Awareness that appearances, listen beloved, appearances don't matter. God's plans matter. We'll come back to this. Look at verses 1 through 3 carefully. What do you see? Verse 1 especially, the people are enraged. There's tumult. The picture is one of noise and and rowdiness and anger filling hearts. Really, I look at it and I kind of think of it as madness. that's happening. The people, it says, are plotting in vain. They're planning, and that word vain is a word that means emptiness. Their plans are empty. There's no content. It's vanity of vanities. But I I want you to focus on the word plotting there. It's it's interesting because the very same Hebrew word translated plot in in, in chapter 2 of the Psalms, in chapter 1 is translated meditate. In Psalm 1, verse 2, the the righteous man meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. But here in Psalm 2, that same word means that the people are gathered plotting. What's the connection? Well, the idea of meditation has to do with pondering by speaking to yourself. Now, some of you guys might do this. Others might watch you and think you're crazy, but... Imagine when you're when you're reciting scripture to yourself, you've memorized it and you say it to yourself over and over. And we talk about preaching the gospel to yourself. I think that's good. And so we speak to ourselves and we. We want to meditate on that truth and the promises of God. But what if you're not meditating on good things, on the promises of God, and instead you're thinking about bad things and evil things, and you're thinking about bad plans, and you're muttering to yourself, and you're murmuring to yourself, and you're getting yourself all angry and upset. Well, that's the picture of what's happening here in Psalm 2. They're mulling over their anger against God. All of the things that they have thought about God, they continue to... It continues to boil up inside of them. And it leads to verse 2, if you see there, the planning that's taking place in verse 2. There's a buildup occurring, if you can notice it. The nations, the peoples, then their rulers and their kings. They take counsel. They're they're positioning themselves. It says they're they're setting themselves up. We've seen this happen a lot. If you just take a look at Twitter... (laughs) You see political talk shows. One person makes some ignorant claim, but others jump right on board. They love what's just been said, and they agree with it. Then momentum is, is built up in the wrong-headed things. Emotions run wild. And now you have this, this mob. Oh, those, those Christians are taking away our rights. Those Christians are so narrow-minded. But I want you to notice the plan. It's talk, it's just a plan, but they position themselves, some translations say they conspire, they work each other up into this frenzy, remember the word rage, and what do they want? Verse 3, what is it that they want in this frenzy? They want to be freed. They want to be freed from what? They want to be freed from their enemy. Their opponent? And who is their enemy? God himself and his anointed. Do you see that in verse 3? God himself and his anointed. And if you don't know this, the word anointed, the, the Hebrew word for anointed is the word Mashiach, Messiah. They put themselves against God and against his Messiah. Who's the anointed? the kings of the people of Israel the kings of the people of God they were the ones anointed and set apart by God to rule and protect his rule over and protect his people of course they were pointing forward to someone much greater than them but the davidic king even after the exile was looked for they were still waiting for the anointed one to come as a nation in exile to rescue them but what were the nations thinking The nations, that is the world, believe that God is stifling them. They believe the enemy's temptation as we saw even in the Garden of Eden, the temptation that came to Eve and said, God's withholding something good from you. That's what the nations believe. You're stifling us. God is stifling them. It's a battle for authority. It's a a battle, as one wrote, For Lordship. Verse 3: Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. Beloved, they see the God of the Bible as one who has robbed them of their freedom and they want it back. But man, we have been there, haven't we? But for the grace of God, we'd still be there. This is important. We have to step back and, and see what the world is thinking of our God. And it is this. They think of Him as their competition. We see throughout the Scriptures people wanting to be their own gods, creating their own idols, refusing to worship and honor the true Lord of creation, exchanging the glory of God for created things. And the saddest part of it all, beloved, is that if they would simply walk with the Lord instead of against, they'd have everything. But they reject Him Sin is irrational, profoundly irrational. And beloved, you have to see that this is the context into which Messiah came. It's the context, actually it's it's the reason he came. A world and its leaders that hated God and want to replace him. Rage against God. The second picture, verses 4 through 6, take a look there is a picture of the very throne room of God. We enter into the throne room of God. He sits in heaven. This has to be an intentional swipe at the kings and rulers plotting and planning against Him because He is so far above them, seated upon His throne, in the comfort of His own palace, which is the heavens. Does God look worried? Not at all. They're raging against Him, but He sits and rains far above almost emphasizing that he has to look down to even catch a glimpse of the enraged mobs i think about uh, the story of babel and if you read it carefully there in genesis 11 that the language is that god has to come down and, and look at what's happening there on babel they thought they were building this great tower up to god and god has to kind of look down and take out his glasses really to see okay god doesn't use glasses by the way his eyes are good they're, they're perfect in case you're wondering Now look, the psalmist wants to to paint this picture for those who might be anxious with what they're seeing around them. He wants to make something clear. It may not always be apparent to the human eye, but God remains on His throne and His people can be confident. He is not only not afraid of their plotting, He laughs at it. And I'll be honest, it's hard for me to read that and go, wow, the Lord is holding them in derision. He's mocking them. But the point seems clear. He's pointing out the folly of a world that rages against the mighty one. God laughs because their rebellion is, for lack of a better term, their their rebellion is silly. Their their attempt is, is pitiful. Now look, laughter is not all that we see in God but we do see the laughter. Whenever I read this passage, there's a picture that comes to mind. And I don't know if you've seen a scene like this, I'm pretty sure you have, where there's this little child, this little kid that is trying to fight against a man twice his size. And this child is going and he's swinging and he's trying to fight. And what does the man twice his size do? He just puts his hand out on his forehead and keeps him at bay. It happens to short people like me too, by the way. Tall people just put their hand out and I can't reach and we're flailing arms and but to no avail. The man can't help but laugh. While his people on earth may be afraid, God is unfazed. Look at verse 5. It's his turn to speak. They, the others, the kings, spoke in verse 3, but now it's God's time to speak and he terrifies them with his words. What does he say? Here's what he says. My plan cannot be thwarted. I have already set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and he will reign. In other words, the Lord above is saying to all those who continue to rage against him, who desire to dethrone him and dethrone his anointed one, the Messiah, try as you may, victory is already mine My anointed king will reign. You will not. You cannot succeed against him. Don't try. And beloved, I don't want you to miss this. God and the anointed go together always. The Messiah is God's prepared king. The one who will sit on the throne and reign in righteousness and justice and mercy because the strength of God is behind him. And the first picture was that of an angry child raging, shaking his fist at a man twice his size, maybe a hundred times his size. The second picture is the glorious throne room of God in which there is perfect peace, silence, until he speaks himself. Simply to say, my plan will come to pass. Believer, do not fear. There's more to this psalm. Look at verses 7 through 9. A third picture develops, a third scene Focus now turns from God on His throne to the anointed, to the King Himself, to the Messiah. It is as though He heard the words of the Lord seated on the throne and is announcing it and all of its implications to His kingdom and to the followers of God. This is a scene of God's anointed and His inheritance. The royal decree has gone forth, the decision by the Lord, and it is binding. And whoever this Davidic figure is, Whoever this king is, he is Yahweh's son. Remember the promise, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? This was the Davidic covenant. He's claiming it here. This Davidic figure now hears the words of commendation. But he also hears the words of commitment from the father. Do you see that there? There's a commitment the Father is making to the Son. The Son will be exalted. The Son will have the inheritance. Look at the key words. The nations as His inheritance. It was the nations that were raging. But they're going to be His inheritance. The ends of the earth as His possession. But the kings of the earth were the ones standing against Him. That means this angry mob will be quieted. Remember, the reign's going to be eternal. It's going to be forever. No kingdom will be able to stand against it. But let me ask you the question, which Davidic king experienced this? Solomon, no, we said. Uzziah, he had a long reign. But no. Josiah, righteous, helped bring things back to, to the Lord. And no. Prophets, even after these kings, continue to remind the people, I want to hear the words of Scripture here. Jeremiah 23, 5, during the the exile. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Ezekiel 37, even later in the captivity. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. David was long gone by this time. So were the kings of Judah. Who is this about? Who is this king? And what is this inheritance? Mark chapter 1. You are my son. Do you see the, the language of Psalm two? This is the enthronement. John 6:37, "All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out." In fact, Ephesians 1:18, we read there that the saints that is Christians are the very inheritance of God. Who's the king? Who's this son? What's his inheritance? How is he going to inherit the nations and the ends of the earth? I want you to think carefully here. Do you remember the things that Jesus said when He was going to ascend after his resurrection? Jesus says, in what we know of as the Great Commission, "Go and make disciples, therefore, of what? All what? Nations. What's his inheritance? The nations. What does he say in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he is ascending and he's, he's telling his disciples that they're going to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? The ends of the earth. Where is his inheritance promised in Psalm 2? He will have his inheritance. Let me read to you from Revelation 21 And I saw no temple in the city. This is about New Jerusalem. They will bring, listen to this, into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it. Do you see that? Jesus conquers all, and then he receives an inheritance made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Revelation 7, 9-10. After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Beloved, those are white robes purchased by Jesus. With palm branches in their hands, And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See what's going on here? The original audience of Psalm 2 may have been looking for an earthly king or Messiah who would break the false kingdoms with a rod of iron, but Jesus is so much more than an earthly Messiah. Amen? He conquers, but through his sacrifice... He breaks them by breaking up stony hearts and replacing them with hearts of flesh. He conquers by saving according to the riches of His glorious grace. Jesus is the King of kings, and His kingdom will be filled with people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, and His kingdom will last forever and ever. No kingdom will stand against it, no power, no enemy, no opponent, no raging nation, no plotting peoples. He will conquer all. Merry Christmas. And here's the amazing thing about this King Jesus and his kingdom. It's a kingdom of life and hope and fullness and goodness and healing. The picture is a conquering king empowered by God himself reigning over the nations to the ends of the earth. But there's still one more picture. The picture in verses 10 through 12 of kindness extended. A sober invitation. Though there is a warning here, certainly, it's also an invitation. Here's the way forward. We're talking to the kings who are raging against him, to those who are opposing him. And here the psalmist says, here's the way forward. Stop your fighting. Stop your kicking and screaming and your raising your fist against God. Instead of plotting against Messiah, humble yourselves before God. Serve Him. Recognize your place and stop trying to usurp His. He's a faithful and loving God. Kiss the Son. That is, pay homage to Him. Receive Him as your rightful King and the judgment and wrath... You will not experience. This reminds me of what Jesus says. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look at the last line. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Beloved, as one person put it, there is no refuge from God, but there is refuge in Him. For all who seek it. And they are invited to come. And this last section is, in some form, a gospel message. The one who takes refuge in Him does not need to do any work but receive the gift. As we take time during this Advent season to ponder the glorious message of Christmas, we can't miss, beloved, that Jesus is the King of Kings a powerful, mighty king who, yes, crushes the, the enemies and the kingdoms through his love and grace, though, yes, one day through his judgment. We can't miss that though we may at times feel like there is chaos surrounding us, God remains on his throne and his anointed will reign. In fact, he has already defeated the raging nations and the plotting peoples and the rulers and the kings According to the early parts of Acts, He's done so already by going to the cross, dying and rising again. So what should we do? As His people who know this, how shall we live? In light of this reality, we must know this first. We too were of the nations and of the peoples and of the plotters and those raging against God. We are no better But the conquering King Jesus, by his grace, has made us captives. By his love, he has conquered our rebellious hearts and turned them to himself. From captives, then he made us into sons and daughters of the living God. As his captives, only then are we truly free. As captives to Christ, only then are we truly alive. And so we want to declare His goodness and His kindness to the nations and to the ends of the earth. And when we see the nations raging and the peoples plotting, we shouldn't respond by being enraged and trying to use human tactics and do the same things that they're doing in a a sanctified way. No. Instead, we should want them to know who we know. And have them also kiss the Son. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, listen to this language. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That means we're captives in that procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. The kingdom God has promised us so much better than this world. So let us set our hearts and minds on it. Spread the fragrance to the world that they too might humble themselves and join us in worshiping the Lamb. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for Your holy word. We thank You that we can come and meditate and ponder. And I pray, Lord, that you would not allow us to murmur and mutter. Lord, we have raged. Now I ask, Lord, that we would take refuge. You promised that all those who call upon your name will be saved. And so I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in the room gathered now that has not yet tasted of the goodness of this glorious, gracious, and holy God, May today be the day of salvation for them. For you, Lord, are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to invite Pastor Tim to come forward to lead us in the Lord's Supper.